be seated this morning. Before I get into the word of the Lord, I just wanna, I was not able to be here last week. I, me and my wife had to go to a wedding down in Arkansas to my niece and on a Saturday night and it was um, several hours away and we weren't able to get back in time for church and, and uh, we wasn't able to uh, thank you for your wonderful gifts and encouragement, your cards and all the things that you've done for pastor's appreciation. We're so thankful. We, we uh, are so undeserving, we feel like. It's one of the most humiliating days of my life, but we are thankful and we are grateful. And um, we've got some funny cards. We've got some serious cards. We've got tear-jerking cards. And, and we got others that made us laugh. And they were all so special and important to us. And, but mainly of all, one of the things that I, I love and, and I appreciate the most is just your faithfulness to the house of the Lord and your faithfulness to the church. That, that's the best gift that you could ever give me as a pastor is you just being at the house of God because I want the best for you and I want the best for your families. But on behalf of me and Jenny, we want to thank you for that and um, we appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's always awesome to be able to go to a wedding and um, be a part of your family and, and we were able to do that and we're, we were thankful for the trip as well, but we sure miss the church when we're gone. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. We're not going to read a lot because uh, you're just going to have to go and, and study some stuff for yourself. We, need, we want you to uh, read Exodus 25 and 26 and 27 and 28 and 29 and 30. And there's just a lot there. And we, we just, you just got to pick something out to bring as a text. And then we'll get into the preaching of the word. Um, the Bible tells us, and you can remain seated, you've been up a long time worshiping. The Bible tells us in Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Now we're gonna stop right there and then we'll get into some more later on. But two weeks ago, I started a mini sermon on the tabernacle that God commanded Moses to build in the wilderness. The tabernacle is called and referred to by all historians as Moses' tabernacle throughout the scripture. It is even depicted, depicted as that. In this 25th chapter of Exodus, we see that God commands Moses to build the tabernacle and he gave him specific instructions of how and what to build the tabernacle out of. My goal is not to talk about all the different kinds of skins and the colors, the size and the things that are to be of gold, and the things that are to be of brass and the different materials that was used and what they all actually represent. But this tabernacle, if you will get into a very serious study, you'd have to study for about a year. It is, everything about it is a symbol of Jesus Christ, all the way down to the tent stakes and the pegs that hold it together. I'm just going to reveal the biblical pattern of worship that was expressed in the setup of the temple itself. That's my go today. Some would argue and say, well, that was the Old Testament, but we live in the New Testament. They will argue that that was a time of law, but you and I, we live in a time of grace. But what we have to understand is the pattern set in the Old Testament speak and reveal the blueprint of biblical worship and the Old Testament is actually our schoolmaster according to the Apostle Paul. Buried in the rituals of the sacrifices and the holy days and the symbols of the furnitures and even their elements, there are the principles that still govern heavenly worship today in the 21st century church. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever and he changes not when it comes to his style of 
worship. How many know what I'm talking about? Worship is not a preference or a smorgasbord that we can actually pick and choose from as individuals. It's not personal opinion. It's not personal preference. It's not a certain style that we like that sets the tone for biblical worship either. Worship is not about the style of music, the kind of songs, or the mixture of certain sounds. Worship is seen more in our approach to the throne of grace and our deep affection of our devotion to God through the lifestyle that we're actually presenting before him as we approach him. As a matter of fact, that's what the psalmist said, didn't he? Psalms chapter 24, verse 3 and 4, he said, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul into vanity nor sworn deceitfully. There is a biblical guideline to our worship and they're seen and they're reflected all throughout the Old Testament in its types and shadows, especially within this tabernacle. As a matter of fact, the New Testament is very, very clear that there is a pattern and a right way to worship God. The Bible tells us in John 4 and 24, oh, I'm about to preach, I know where I'm going. John 4 and 24 says God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And then listen to the next verse of scripture, for God seeketh such to worship him. Do you know that God is looking out over the earth looking for a congregation, looking for a people that will worship him in spirit and truth. God is seeking us out. God is looking for that. God desires that. God is in heaven wanting to find a church that will be able to worship him in spirit and truth. Well, if we got to worship him in spirit and truth, then what does that look like? Then what is that about? How do we know if we're in spirit or truth? But the tabernacle of Moses was a specific, special revelation of God that was given to Moses, and then Moses gave it to us to help us understand how to come into the presence of God. When you come into the presence of royalty, there's a right way to approach royalty. Can I have an amen? I want to tell you one of the strangest things that I ever had to go through in my life when I was over in China, and the, the Mao was dead. You know, he was the, the emperor for years and years and years, and he died in 1977, I think it was. And they got his body laid out, and it's, uh, and it's in a big uh, tomb, but it's got glass in it, and you can see it, and they preserved his body. And they actually believe that he's going to raise from the dead one of these days. And one of the things that you had to do when you walked in and entered into that area to where you could view his body, you had to do it with such reverence. And they told you, you cannot speak a word. You cannot say a word. You cannot make any kind of gestures. The only thing you could do was cross your arms and walk in and be very reverent and very quiet. If you didn't, they shot you. That's the way how serious it was. And as you looked at that body, the only thing you could do in the way of a gesture is lay down flowers. And there were piles and piles of flowers. There was a line that would walk in to see that man's body that had been dead since 1977. And they fear him because they think he's going to raise from the dead and come back to life. And his number one saying was that he believed in submission through a gun barrel. He killed more of his people than anything else and the people feared him. 
him. But let me tell you, there's another one that we're here to reverence today. His name is not Mao. His name is not Muhammad. His name is not Buddha. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's the son of the living God. And he's the creator of all things. Can I have an amen? He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the superior one. There is no other God but besides him. Can you stand to your feet and honor him today? And can you give him due reverence to his name? Can you worship the king of kings? Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Praise his holy name. Hallelujah. But the tabernacle of Moses is a special revelation that God gave to Moses to, for him to give to us so that he would teach us how to come into the presence of God. And the way that they would construct and build this tabernacle would determine whether or not that God would be with his people. If they did not do it the way that God told them to, then he would not dwell with them. If one thing was off, I want to tell you, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, brother. I want to tell you, if one little thing was off, if it wasn't to the perfect design of God, God, then God would not inhabit that temple. And the Bible tells us uh, that in Exodus 25 and 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This was the whole purpose for the tabernacle to be built in the first place, is for God to dwell with man. Let me tell you, that is still God's intent today. God wants to dwell with us. Can I have an amen? The tabernacle of God cannot be after the design of a man, but it had to be patterned after the design of God. And there was a pattern that Moses had to follow, and it is seen in the next several chapters as God lays out these requirements for him to be able to build it after. Moses travails for six days upon that mount. He's praying. He's seeking God. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And for six solid days, God does not even speak to him. There's not a whisper. There's nothing. And Moses is thinking, why am I up here? But on the seventh day, God begins to speak and for the next 33 days, God lays out the conditions, the measurements, and the order of that tabernacle. For 33 days, he's making out the plan of God for Moses in order for Moses to go down and build him a house that he may dwell with the children of Israel. This tent that God called his tabernacle would be the center of all of the children of Israel's tents. They all face the tabernacle. When you look at that tabernacle up there on the outside of that tabernacle to the north and to the south and to the east were the different tribes positioned and they were there and they all faced that tabernacle. Every single one they'd walk out at night and they'd see the glow of the presence of God in the holies of holies. They would see the fire, the pillar of fire right over where the ark of the covenant was in that tent and they would see the wonders of God. And matter of fact I want you to understand something. When you look at that and then you begin to see where all of the different tribes were positioned, if you would get an arrow view of it, guess what it was in the form of? It was in the form of a cross. Hallelujah. Everything is revealing Jesus Christ. And this was to be the pattern that was to be followed. God would be the center of attention and the center of everything. He was to be the center
center of the Israelites' very lives. The cross would be a focal point of everyday life, even for us today. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after me, you cannot be my disciple. Every day we have a decision to serve Jesus Christ. God was to be the one that, that governed the people. He would be the number one. He would be their passion. He would be their desire. He would be their focal point. He would be their priority. God is a jealous God, folks, and God has not changed. He will have no other gods before him. God will not allow you to have an other God, whether it be yourself or anything else, in front of him. He's got to be number one or he will not be God at all. Can I have an amen? Nothing has changed. God still wants to be the center of our lives. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we cannot serve two masters. Either we'll hate the one and love the other, we'll despise the one and cling to the other, but we cannot serve God in mammon. We cannot serve God in the cares of this life and go after money and go after careers and put everything else ahead of the presence of God and his commands for our lives. God wants us to be serious when it comes to our relationship with him. Now, I know this is going to be hard preaching today, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But notice some strange words that we find in our text that are found in verse 9. Let us make it according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. This is what God tells Moses to do. Now, this scripture doesn't even make sense to the natural mind. If I was Moses, I'd think, what in the world is he talking about? But Moses knew what he was talking about because God began to show him some stuff. Notice the words, make it after the pattern of the tabernacle that I will show thee. In other words, what, the, what tabernacle is he talking about? Because there is no other tabernacle to compare it to. There has never been another tabernacle. Moses was the first tabernacle ever made. Can I have an amen? We know that the temple of Solomon, it was built after the tabernacle of Moses, and it, and it stood until the Babylonian invasion in 586 B.C. when it was destroyed along with the city of Jerusalem. The tribe of Judah was carried into captivity, as we all know, and a restoration temple was not completed until approximately 516 B.C. That temple was built by Zerubbabel, and it was the temple that was enlarged and expanded by, by Herod the Great. And this was the temple that stood and existed during the time of Jesus Christ, but it was destroyed by the Romans' invasion of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So what tabernacle or what pattern was God referring to to Moses when he said, build it after the tabernacle that I'm going to show you. What tabernacle is he talking about? It's so strange. The writer of Hebrews gives us insight to that question. In the book of Hebrews chapter 8, starting with verse 1, he says, now these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Now he's talking about a different type of tabernacle altogether. Moses, David, Solomon, Zerubbabel, who all made tabernacles or temples, they were mere humans, they were mere, mere mortals. But according to the writer of Hebrews, Yahweh, God himself, also built a tabernacle and it was what he called the true tabernacle. Can I have an amen? 
And it was not an earthly tabernacle, but it was a heavenly tabernacle. God allowed Moses to see a pattern of worship in heaven, and that tabernacle of Moses was designed as a mirror or a reflection, or a reflection of the principles that govern heavenly worship today. God gave Moses special revelation. He's seen in the heavenlies. He copied, he mimicked the tabernacle that was shown to him in heaven. So this means that Moses' tabernacle that we see up here was the example and the shadow of things to come and it was a pattern after a heavenly tabernacle that is to give us heavenly, spiritual-inspired anointing of the Holy Spirit. Can I have an Amen. Worship is not a freestyle or an ungoverned frenzy where we can just do what we want to do. Our worship cannot be after the design of a man. Let me say it again. But it must meet the pattern and the design of God. The tabernacle that Moses constructed was called, constructed was called many different things throughout the scripture. In Exodus 38, it was called the tabernacle of testimony. Say testimony. In number 17, it was called the tabernacle of witness. Say witness. In Exodus 25, it was called the sanctuary. Say sanctuary. And it was also known in the Old Testament as the tent of meetings. Say tent of meetings. All of these titles and names are messages in themselves, and they all have significance when it comes to our relationship with God. I could preach a week on the testimony part, on the witness part, on the sanctuary part, and on the, I could do a series out of that, because every one of those things means something. But what it's really trying to say is, it denotes that God would work with his congregation in such a way that people, that they themselves would become a testimony and a witness of God's working with them upon the earth. Earth. Now, I don't know about you, but when you get into heavenly worship, when you get into spiritual worship, when you begin to honor God in spirit and in truth, guess what happens? God begins to work among you. God begins to set you up as a testimony. God begins to lift you up, and he begins to put you on a hill. He calls you a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. He calls you the light of the world. And what God is wanting to do at the palace of praise is get every single one of us unified in spiritual worship to where we come in and we honor God and when we do, God's working begins to work among us. Oh, somebody stand to your feet and praise him. Ah, oh, somebody praise him. Come on. This is what God desires to do. He's seek of such. He's looking for it. God's desiring it. God's longing for it. He's just waiting for a congregation to get to the place where he can pour his abundant grace out upon it, where he can pour his spirit out and the workings and the testimonies and the witness of his presence that we reflect who he is because we're his function and body, the church. Now it would be the place of his presence, his glory and his miracles, his inhabitation, his manifestation. It would literally be God dwelling, God's dwelling place is what he was building. It was going to be a refuge. It was called a sanctuary, a hiding place. You can say whatever you want to say, but I'm here to tell you, the sanctuary makes a difference. It's a hiding place. It's a refuge. Come on, somebody. Why is it that church ain't important until something goes bad and everybody wants to come running to it? It's a refuge. It's a hospital. Come on, somebody. It's a place of recovery. It's a place of protection. Oh, God, help me. 
As we said a few weeks ago, even though we know that the church is not this building. And when I say sanctuary, I'm not talking about the building itself. We know that we, the children of God, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We know that we are the body of Christ, the church in the New Testament. We are the lively stones that are built up together for a holy inhabitation of the Lord. Come here for a minute, Mike. Good looking feller. I'm a stone. And I house a certain amount of the presence of God. In the Old Testament, they talked about in this tent of me, stretching the tent stakes, making room for the presence of God. Every time that we come together, I'm a stone and he's a stone, guess what? Boom. The space of God's dwelling increases. Come here, Mike. That mic. Man, we're covered around with mics. Now, here comes Mike. He's another stone, and he comes to the house of God on Sunday. Boom. Another dwell. We're, we're, what are we doing? We're spreading our tent stakes. We're building a house, a house where God can inhabit. And the more people that we gather together, and the more people we get arm in arm, unified in one purpose and in one place, God's presence gets stronger and stronger and stronger. The, the presence that houses Mike, the presence that houses this Mike, and the presence that houses, it unites and it builds a holy inhabitation under the Lord. Can I have an amen? But what, but what constitutes the church is the gathering itself. It doesn't matter if it's in a house, a field, a cave, or underground. You make the sanctuary where the gathering's at. The body of Christ is to meet. We're to gather. We're to congregate. We're to unify. We're to assemble. We are to come together. We talked about that. No one person is the church within themselves, we said, and we are codependent upon one another. Therefore, we're to be faithful to the ten of meetings. Can I have an amen in the house? The context of our growth and spiritual maturity lies in the context of us coming together because iron sharpens iron. I need you, you need me. This body needs you. It's not always about you needing it. Sometimes it needs you. And if we want to be a witness and have a testimony and have God's presence, then we must be faithful to the institution that God created called the church, the pillar and the ground of truth, that which he's coming after. As a matter of fact, when you look in the Hebrew, it says this, you can't have a witness if you're not faithful to the house of God. That's what this whole statement is saying. Don't try to be a witness for Jesus if you don't love his church. Because he loved his church so much that he died and he gave himself for it. Come on, somebody. The church is the corporate gathering of the believers to make up one body to glorify God. That's why we're here today. We're not here just so that we can get something out of God. We're here to glorify God. We're here to worship God. We're here to exalt God. We're here to be blessed of him, but we're here to bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that's within me. And not to forget his friend's benefits that come along while I do it. Can I have an amen? We're to be devoted to the church, committed to it, to be like David when he said, oh, I was so glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. To enter into the tabernacle, you know what you had to do? Look where you entered it in. You entered in on the east side, right there by the altar of burnt offerings. That was the gateway to the, everything else had a curtain around it, and that was the entrance. On the east side was the camp of Judah. In other words, you could not go into the courtyard without, first of all, passing through the camp or the tribe of Judah, which is what? Praise. So what, how do we enter into this place? Not with doubt, 
not with wrath, but we lift up holy hands. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving. We enter into his courts with praise. And we bless his holy name. Oh, hallelujah. So to enter into the presence of God, one must worship. Can I have an amen? It is the gateway that it's the door into the presence of God. Amen. But I want to center today's message around what I call, man, I don't even know where to go. I call it, I call it the, uh, what I call the first section of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was divided into three sections, as you all know. There's the outer court. That's the place where the altar of burnt offerings is at and the bronze laver, which we'll talk about later on. We won't get there today. Okay, then there's the holy place where the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the golden lamp stands at. And then there's what we call the holy of holies. Behind that line, it's called the veil, which is the ark of the covenant. So there's three stages to this thing. Notice the state of light in each of these sections. If you'll go study, you'll find out that the light outside in the courtyard was only natural light. You done it during daylight. It was the sun that gave you light. In the holy place, it had only the light of the lampstand, seven candlesticks on a candlestand, and it was fueled by oil. Amen? And the holy of holies has the light of the glory of God's manifestation, which was his abiding presence. In other words, there was no candles, there was no sunlight, it was the illuminating presence of God. Now I wanna stop and I wanna say something right here and get ahead of my notes for the next few weeks. God don't want us to stay in natural light. God don't even want us to stay walking around with a candlestick, though the word of the Lord is why it's like a candle. It goes before us. It's wonderful to be word people. We'll get into that next week, hopefully. But God wants us to get into the place where there's the Shekinah glory that comes down on the church, where there's an abiding presence of God that is visible and seen. Maybe not with a natural eye, but when people come in, they see something, they know something, they detect something, they discern. There's something different about this place. Oh, I'm telling you what, I know without a shadow of a doubt that God wants to set his approval upon this hill like you've never seen before, where people are just driving down PP Highway and all of a sudden, their car just turns down here on Herschel Best Boulevard and they don't know why. And all of a sudden they come down to our driveway, they just turn in. They say, we don't know why, but we're here. It's already beginning to happen. We've been out there praying on Monday nights and people drive up. I don't know why I drove up. There's just something compelled me. There's just something that drawed me here. I look up and one old man told me, he said, I was driving something ripped my heart and said I had to come by here and he said I'll be at church next Sunday and he was. I'm here to tell you God wants an abiding presence at the palace of praise where the Shekinah glory draws all men into hell where a perpetual revival breaks out where a divine awakening happens where we make a difference not only in our community and in our families but in the nation itself and in the world itself. God wants to do a work in this place that we cannot even comprehend if you believe that I know I'm doing this a lot but I just feel that if you believe that stand to him and give him a standing ovation of praise in advance praise him like you believe that's going to happen oh I believe it with me 
We've been praying for it. We've been longing for it. We've had words spoken of us by I don't know how many different prophets and pastors and preachers. Hallelujah. These three sections represent the three different stages of the position of the believer. They represent you and I. Each of these stations had a purpose to fill for the children of Israel in their approach to the presence of God. Let me stop right here. There ought to be a desire to approach and desire to enter in and desire to draw near to God. Blessed are those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're the ones that's going to be filled. Our passion ought to be here this morning, oh God. Like a deer penneth after a water brook, so does my soul penneth after you, O Lord. I'm hungry to see you. I want to see you. Until we get that, it's not going to happen. Come on, somebody. But each of us, we understand that these stations represent us. And which one are we going to be at? Each of these stations had a purpose to fill. And there was a reason behind them. There was first what we call the courtyard, which we pointed out to you where the altar's at. In, it is this, in this place, it's called the outer court. It's outer. Say outer. How many knows it's always better to be inner than outer? Amen? But you can't get in until you go through the outer court. And this was the place of sacrifice. Now, let me tell you something, folks. Christianity is free, but there's a sacrifice and a cost to it. It costs Jesus his life, but it costs you and me our life, too. We have to lay our lives down. It was the beginning point to the presence of God. No one could get into God's presence unless they go by the way of that thing called the altar of burnt offerings. There's no way to get in the holy place. There's no way to get in the holies of holies until you face that altar. In, in this courtyard, that, this is where that altar was, and the brazen altars where the priests offered up the sacrifice on behalf of the children of Israel for the atonement of their sin. The children of Israel would bring their sacrifices to the priest. They would cut its throat, and then each person had to be the one that slit the throat, and then the priest would take that sacrifice and the blood of that sacrifice and then offer that animal up on that altar for a burnt offering so the atonement could be made for the sins of that individual. The brass altar symbolized judgment. And matter of fact, anywhere you see brass in Scripture, we've said it over and over, it's always a symbol of judgment. This is why this area is called the courtyard because it's a place of judgment. It's a place of court. Come on, somebody. This is a place where you're judged. You're either going to be justified or you're going to be condemned. This is whether either you're going to be bound or free, you're going to be accepted or you're going to be rejected. You're either going to be a Cain or you're going to be an Abel with your sacrifice. Every time we walk into the courts of God, we're going to be judged. You've been judged when you walked into this place this morning by God. He looked down to see if you were worthy to offer him spiritual sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And if he rejects you, guess what happens? There's no abiding presence of God. If he accepts you, then favor comes. A church that's full of sin, and I'm not talking about the sinner that's coming in to visit. Them are called what you call the proselyte Gentiles. They've not been grafted into the vine as of yet. So the judgment upon them are a little different than the judgment upon us who are believers. To whom much is given, much is required. Oh, come on. I'm trying to preach to you today. 
I'm not talking about the guy that comes in off the street that he can hinder the whole service because he's got sin in his life. No. I'm talking about the believer who walks in and has been blood-bought but yet has sin in their life and they walk in and they set the tone and the whole house can be affected by the presence of that one individual. If you don't believe me, look where one, one man hid some stuff in a tent and it caused Israel to lose in battle. One man. And people's lives were killed over that. This is a place of courtroom this morning. When we walk through his inner into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts, as believers, we can walk in confidently. The Bible even tells us to walk in boldly. But if we're playing games, watch out. Judgment. You're either going to be bound over for trial, maybe not. Judgment will not happen immediately, but you'll be bound, held over for trial until you get that under the blood. But if you don't get it under the blood before trial date, you're going to suffer the consequences. Come on, somebody. There is no entrance into God's presence without judgment. This is a symbol of justification by faith through Jesus Christ. When I walked through those doors today and God looked down at me, he said, oh, he's acceptable. Why? He's seen the blood. If he sees the blood, he'll pass over me. I, my sacrifice has been accepted. Why? Because I have not offered my own sacrifice in my own way, but I've trusted in the sacrifice in which he's provided for me. Hallelujah. Romans 5 and 1 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that justification is a judicial act of God where God judges you to be holy on the basis of the sacrifice that he's provided for you. Amen. Now, come on, somebody ought to get happy right here. The difference in the Old Testament is each man had to bring their own sacrifice. Amen. But in the New Testament, God has provided us a sacrifice like he did for Abraham and Isaac upon Mount Moriah. Hallelujah. Oh, praise God. Right in the face of the Mount of Law, God offered himself a sacrifice. For what the law could not do, and that was weak through the flesh, God sent in his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that we might be made the righteousness of God. To those that could not afford one here today, don't worry about it. You've already got a sacrifice for your sin. In that courtyard, the sin of man is rolled upon the sacrifice, and it provided for man's substitute during that, during the, under the law. And man's sin then was not removed. His nature did not change. He was not born again. His sin was just covered or forgiven on the basis of the sacrifice that was provided. And the sacrifice in the Old Testament were bulls and goats and heifers and things of that nature. The blood of those bulls and goats and heifers could not abolish or destroy man's sin but they would only appease God's wrath for one year. This was known in scripture as the day of atonement. The day of atonement, they would bring their sacrifices and they would be offered up and if they presented them right and if everything was done right, God would be well pleased as the priest would do his little rituals and go through and put that blood upon the mercy seat upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant. We'll get into that a little bit later on. And it was there that God would appease, would be appeased by those sacrifices and he would cover the children of Israel's sin for one year. And it was at this altar where one begins his journey 
into the presence of God. That would secure God's favor upon them, God's protection, God's blessing. How many wants the blessing of God? Amen. The New Testament, which is known as the New Covenant, speaks of Jesus Christ as God's sacrifice or our sacrifice, God's sacrifice to man. Jesus would become man's substitute and he would take away the sins, our sins away from us. He's the, he then is the door to the presence of God. Jesus Christ is your door to the presence of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. The only way you and I come into the presence of God is by us coming through the person of Jesus Christ. This is why John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins. And what I love about the sins of the sins that Jesus does, he don't cover them, he destroys them. They're nailed to him. The handwritings of ordinances that was against us, they're nailed to the cross with Jesus, never to be remembered anymore. That's something to shout about. It was the Apostle Paul that said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, for he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Listen to Hebrews 9, 13 through 15. I'll read it a little slow. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, why does it purify the flesh? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he, the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression that were under the first testaments, that which are called, they which are called, might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Oh, hallelujah. Did you get what that said? Listen to what Hebrews 10, 4 through 7 says. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away the sins. Wherefore, when he cometh, talking about Jesus into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body you have prepared for me. In other words, you, you, the sacrifices is no longer acceptable, but you prepared me a body. What does that mean? Listen to verse six. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. Then said I, I, then said I, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. In other words, what he's saying is, you're no longer going to bless the people as a result of bulls and goats and heifers and pigeons and things of that nature. You have despised, you have no pleasure in them anymore, but you prepared me a body and I'm going to be faithful to that which you've called and commissioned me. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And he says, I'm going to go by the way of the cross. And when I go by the way of the cross, I'm offering this body as that sacrifice so that people can have a true sacrifice that destroys sin forever. And he begins to be the dominant one that becomes Lord of all. Can you give the Lord praise? Amen. That's why that Isaiah 53 and 5 says, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity, and the chastisement of our pieces upon him and through his stripes were healed. Jesus was the fulfillment of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Jesus took man's judgment upon the cross. He became man's substitute for him so that man may have the forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. Our salvation has nothing to do with what we can offer. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift to God, not by works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing you can offer God that you don't already have. Nothing about you impresses him. Come on. Everybody's trying to work it out and plan it out. And some, I, I, I witness to people all the time. They say, well, I just got to work it. No, you can't work it out. 
You can't, you can't make yourself good enough. Come on, somebody. Amen. It has everything to do with what God has offered to us and how we accept that sacrifice as it's offered to us, his free gift called his son. That's why the golden text of the Bible, for God so loved the world that what? He gave. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for God sent not a son of the world to condemn the world but to the world through him might be saved. Isn't that marvelous? Romans 6 and 20, the wages of sin is death but the gift, say gift, the gift of God. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's our free gift. We're to give him praise. Jesus on the day of his crucifixion, he went to a courtyard. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails. It was in that courtyard. He was judged. Isn't that what Isaiah said? He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. What did the scripture say about him? He was afflicted of God. Come on. He was judged in our place and then he was taken and he hung on a cross to purchase our eternal salvation. Let's go back to the courtyard for a moment. All of these sacrifices happened in this courtyard. However, it is here that man is wrapped around sacrifice, forgiveness, repentance, and judgment. That's what takes place. That is what the order of service is in that courtyard. It is the first step to come to the presence of God. And let me stop right here and say, you cannot come into the presence of God without repentance. It's impossible. You can't clean yourself up. You can't make yourself presentable. You can't manipulate. You can't connive. You gotta repent. It ain't even a message anybody preaches anymore. We're living in a time that my preaching, I'm gonna really get into this next week if the Lord allows me. My preaching's considered culturally outdated. You're an outdated preacher and you're preaching an outdated Bible, a Bible that needs to be reconstructed because it's no longer convenient for the 21st century culture. I got just one thing to say about that. I'm not trying to be vulgar, but I'm here to tell you we got a culture going wild that's going crazy and everybody thinks they can fit into the plan and the scope of God as they please and everything's gonna turn out all right. They got another thing coming. Can I have an amen? You cannot come into God's presence without repentance. Repentance is a free gift of God and it is not something you can manufacture, conjure up, or create. Repentance is godly sorrowfulness that can only be felt and known as we are connected and drawn into the presence by the Holy Spirit. The moment you feel convicted, you better repent because you might not get that chance again. To reject and to quench the Spirit is rejecting life. Can I have all men? You cannot come unto him without the Spirit drawing you. You wouldn't even know you needed to be saved. You wouldn't even know that you needed to be forgiven if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. Everybody says, how can them people do that? How can they do that and feel good about it? They don't have no conviction. Can I have an amen? They're walking in what? Natural light. That's where you're at in the outer court. You do not choose him, he chooses you. And then after he chooses you, you better accept him as he knocks on your door and bids you to come to him. At that moment, 
Don't reject, don't resist, because if you do, he's got a word for you. It's found in the book of Hebrews to the children of Israel. You stiff-necked and rebellious and stubborn people. And he slew them in the wilderness. And their carcasses fell there. And a whole generation couldn't go into the promised land until they died. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts you of your sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's why the Bible says in John 16, verse 7 through 11, nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth, it's expedient that I go away. For if I go not away, the comfort of the Holy Ghost will not come unto you. But if I depart, Jesus says, I will send him unto you. And then when he has come, he's going to what? Reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not upon me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So what is that saying? It's telling you that that is the job of the Holy Spirit. We have all kinds of people wanting to serve God by popular opinion, but there's only one opinion that really matters, and that's God's. In the time of Noah, understand this. People really think somehow that God is so merciful and so great that, you know, if, if you'll get in with the right crowd, he ain't going to send everybody to hell. Well, he sends no one to hell. They go there on their own, own accord. Amen? Is a hard preaching here this morning? During the time of Noah, there were seven billion people upon the earth. Some scholars say there were 10 billion. I don't know which one's right, but they say the least would be seven billion and possibly up to 10 billion people upon the face of the earth when the flood came. How many was saved? Eight. Think about that. Seven billion people were whopped off the face of the earth by the judgment of God. And we don't have anybody preaching like this anymore. Oh, it's just not culturally accepted. You're gonna run people away. Yeah, but I gotta stand before God to give an account for the truth that I have spoken as a pastor. And I wouldn't love you if I wouldn't forewarn you of these kinds of things. Noah, now notice something about this. There were seven billion people upon the face of the earth. Eight were saved. And what does the scripture say about Noah? He was a preacher of righteousness in his generation. He preached. And no one listened. He was outdated. The culture resisted it. But when the day that it come time to get into the ark, Noah became the eighth person. He made sure all the rest of his family was in there. He was the priest of his home. And when Noah walked in the door, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shut the door. And then it began to rain, and guess what? Everybody started crying out, but there was no repentance to be found. And they drowned. God help us. We have people wanting to live their own lives, do their own thing, and they call themselves Christians. And there are so many people wanting to live in the courtyard. Even after they become believers, they're called courtyard Christians. They want forgiveness but not repentance. They want to be forgiven. They want to be associated with the church, but they don't want to have a turnaround. And then God gives them a strong warning in the New Testament. In Luke 17, 32, he says, remember Lot's wife? She set up an example for you? Oh, what did she do? In the very act, in the moment of her deliverance, 
She's walking out, but she has to look back just to see what's going on. And when she does, boom, judgment hit her, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Matthew 7 and 13, Jesus says this, not Kent. Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and there be many that find that. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth to life, and very few find it. Oh, God, help us. There are so many Christians that just want to be courtyard Christians. They want a cheap grace, one that forgives, but not one that can empower one to live victoriously. You know what Jesus says about Lot's wife? He kind of refers this, I think, to that. Anyone that takes hold of the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. That's serious, isn't it? That's strong words. Them are the words out of the mouth of the master. I want you to understand that there's no forgiveness, no salvation, no cleansing without repentance where there's a turnaround. Repentance is a turning away from that sin. It's a turnaround. It's leaving it. It's an about face. It's forsaken. It's denouncing our sin. It's denying ourselves. It's denying our lust. It's denying our wants. Amen? Repentance is not living in sin so that grace may more abound. God forbid, Paul said. As I said before, repentance is a gift of God. One of the greatest judgments, and I'm gonna really get right here, and I don't know why the Lord's laid this on my heart, but it's heavy. One of the greatest judgments that's happening in America right now is not catastrophes. It's not God pouring out judgments. It's not lightning Boats or hell storm, storm, stones. Some of that is happening. Did you see the church that celebrated the, 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 the gay pride thing and how lightning hit it and burned it right to the ground with them watching? I, Psalms 150 tells you that the lightning is at his bidding. He does with it what he can. Now you can take that or leave it. It's getting tight in this place this morning. Woo! I smell smoke. I'll tell you the greatest judgment of all, listen to me. The greatest judgment of all is God allowing his people to do what they want to do due to their iniquity because they're bent on doing it anyway and he allows them to do it without ever dealing with them or convicting them. That's one of the greatest judgments that there is. And he offers them no repentance. Hebrews 12, verse 16, 17, if you don't believe me, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. You know that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it with his whole heart, though he sought it carefully with tears. I, I quoted that wrong, excuse me. Esau reaped the whirlwind of his decision due to selling out his birthright, being on iniquity, doing it my way, being worldly. And when it come time, he started, in, uh, to, he started what, reaping his consequences, and then he cried out, but it was too late. Look at what Romans 1 and 8 says. This is New Testament stuff, folks. For the wrath of God, say the wrath of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Dissect it. Notice the words, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. These are people who have been told truth, they experienced truth. It's not talking about the sinner. It's not talking about really the newborn babe either. These are people that know better. These are people that's been told truth. They've had some discipleship. 
Verse 19 says, because that which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it to them. In other words, God has showed them this truth, and that truth has even been planted in them. These are people who have experienced truth and the truth has been revealed to them, yet they hold the truth in unrighteousness. They know the truth, but they don't care. They don't care that it's truth. They're going to do what they want to do and what they believe is acceptable in their own eyes. They claim their own rights. They're not dead to themselves and they're bent on doing what they want to do and they're going to do it. And listen what happens in verse 21 and 22. Because that when they knew God, say knew God, they're talking to the believer. They're talking to you and me. Because that when they knew God, neither were thankful, they took it for granted, but they became vain in their imaginations, their thinking process, and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, but they became as fools. Paul goes on and tells them their fate in verse 24 and 25. Wherefore God also gave them up, say gave them up, to their own lust, their own desires, their own wants, to dishonor that truth that they know. In other words, God says, okay, you're gonna do it. There it is. I'm backing off. If you're so bent that you're going to keep on, keep on, and you're just so bent to doing it, I'm going to let you do it, but you're going to do it without me. And he lifts his hand from them. Look at verse 25. They changed the truth of God into a lie in their own mind, and they worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, in other words, they cast down that truth that was in them They resisted that truth. They ignored that truth. They suppressed it because they did not like to retain the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people right here right now taking these words and they're putting it in their mind and their minds are turning like crazy and it's a hard word and they're already making up their mind whether they're gonna reject it or accept it. They're hearing truth and they're gonna have to make up their mind. Do I resist that? Am I really going to commit my life to something of that nature that so that binds you? It ain't. It don't bind you. Truth sets free. Amen. Truth is not here to take something away from you. Truth is here to secure that you get everything coming to you that is good and holy and acceptable. It's a way of life that produces happiness and joy and peace in the spirit. Can I have an amen? Truth separates that from false. False brings deception, which brings death. God, help me to preach. But listen to me. It says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, this tells me that they have the ability to live victoriously. You say, what do you mean? How could that tell you that they can live victoriously? Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5, Susan Tidwell teaches a lot on this. I enjoy her teaching on it. Though we live in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God in the pulling down of strongholds. Now listen to this. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the captivity of the obedience to Christ. Now watch this. If they can cast down truth, 
and become vain in their imaginations. Isn't that what they done? They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. They cast the truth away. And what happened? They became vain in their thinking. If they can do that, then they have the ability to cast down the evil imaginations that's against the knowledge of the truth of God and they can remain obedient to God. If they can cast down truth, then they can also cast down the evil imaginations that's against that truth. So it's all about choices. That's why that Joshua said, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. But for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. My mind's made up. Amen? But listen to verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they don't want to hear it, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. God's judgment upon such people is that he just lets them do what they want to do, which is unseemly. It's not profitable for them. It's not convenient for them. And they receive in themselves the recompense of their reward. They start reaping their sin. And the wages of sin is death. In other words, they face and they reap the consequences of those things that they said they wanted. Then look at verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, they knew the judgment of God, that they which do such things are worthy of death. Somehow they convinced themselves that they'll make it somehow, but when the consequences sit in, they're reminded of what the truth said. You are worthy of death. And yet, even though they knew it at the very beginning, he says, Yet they done it and they had pleasure in doing the things they done. They done it in the face of God. This is what happens to those who want to remain in the courtyard Christians where they're constantly repenting up and down, in and out. And they live like roller coaster lives. Folks, there's a better life to live than that in a Christian life. And I'm not talking about the newborn babe that just come in and he don't know anything as of yet. He is going to struggle, and that's why we're here to help bear. That's why we gather. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I don't get anything out of church. It's not about that. Sometimes these new converts need you. They need your witness. They need your testimony. They need to see, well, if they look at somebody that they think is spiritual, well, he don't go to church. I don't guess I have to. They don't make it. We're a witness. We're a testimony for heaven's sakes. Come on, somebody. I'm teaching here today. Am I doing all right? And listen to me. Sometimes when these young converts come down here at the altar, they need somebody there with them. But then there are those that know, without a shadow of a doubt, they know. And thank God for forgiveness. I'm, I love forgiveness. First John 1 and 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've all had to use that. But let me tell you, sin is conditional. I want you to know that. Because that same John wrote in verse 2, my little children, these things I write in you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the perpetuation for our sins, but not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Did you notice the word? If we sin, sin is provisionary. It don't have to have, everybody says, oh, we all sin every day. That's a lie. If we're out here practicing sin every day, we're not believers. When I come into this place this morning, I'm holy. How do I know? Because I've been blood bought, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and I'm not out sinning. I live victoriously. There is a victory in Jesus. 
And if there's not, then we're serving the wrong God. Ah, I got to get off my notes or we're going to be here all day. Let me sum it up. But here's where a lot of people want to be. They want to be around that brazen altar. They want forgiveness, but they don't want to repent and turn from it. So what they do, they're constantly having to go to the cross every night. They're praying, God, forgive me of what I've done today. I know I shouldn't have done it, but I'm sorry. Would you help me? Blah, blah, blah. And then the next day they do the same old thing again, and they're right back at the altar. And they're right back at the altar. Is that a bad thing? No, we keep riding the altars. But that should not be for the people who have none come to know the truth. Can I have an amen? There's more to life than being a courtyard Christian. Amen. There's a holy place to get into. And there's a holy of holies to get into. There's a life of victory. There's a life of witness. There's a life of testimony. Come on. You don't have a testimony when you're out here doing all kinds of things all the time and having to go to the altar and having to go back, having to go to the altar. What you got to do is make up your mind. I'm going to that altar and this time, if, by the grace of God, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to repent of that sin. I'm going to turn away from it. And when I turn away from it, I'm never going to look back at it again. I'm going forward in Jesus Christ. I'm living the victory that he said I could have. He said I'm made more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for me. And there's nothing under heaven or on earth or principalities or powers or rulers or darkness, angels or anything else that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, my Lord, I'm a child of God. I'm sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I am his and he is mine. I'm a victor in Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's my desire that we all examine our lives here this morning. It's been a tough word. Tough word, but it's a serious word. I'm going to be talking how that the church has been losing on every front next week, if the Lord willing. And where we're going next week, there are two instruments, or two furnishings, you might say, in that courtyard. The first one is that altar of burnt offerings. That's where we start our journey right there. It's a life of repentance, a life of laying it down. A life of denial. I remember one time when things weren't going my way and God was pressuring me through the, he's so patient and long-suffering. For months he dealt with me over a situation. He don't just leave you like that. But I want you to know we have the parable of the prodigal son where the father let the son leave. Let him go do what he was going to do. And he never went after him. He never went looking for him. He never went searching for him. He let him find himself in the pig pen. Did he not? Thank God he did accept him when he came back broken and repentant. If you come back broken and repentant, there ain't nowhere that he won't bring you out of. But I want to tell you, that little innocent lamb that was lost in innocence, he left the 99 and went looking for him. There's a difference. There's a difference if we sin unintentionally. And if we sin because, you know, we got caught up in something and out of a moment of weakness we sin, the Holy Spirit and that little, he's, we're like a little lamb. He comes after us. But if we're standing in the Father's house rebellion and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and we premeditate our sin and then we come back to the altar and say, oh, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get blasted tonight, but tonight I'm going to, or tomorrow I'll go back to the altar and ask God for I'm going to go out on my wife on Thursday night, but Sunday I'm going to repent of it. That don't work. 
it don't work. You can't premeditate this stuff. You can't premeditate your sin and you can't premeditate your repentance because if God don't offer you the repentance, you can't be saved. And God will only offer the repentance to the, those who have a broken and contrite spirit who those are saying, oh, I'm so sorry. And you're willing to walk away from it. You're willing to repent of it. And you're willing to say, I'm done with that. That offends you, God. That hurts you, God. I don't want that God in my life. But the next furnishing is the laver, and it's out in the outer court as well. The people that dwell in the courtyard, I didn't get to it this morning because of time, but they all dwell in the natural light. They see things in the light of the world, the way the world views it, the way the culture views it, and what people view of it. There's not no real spiritual depth there because you've never been into the holy place where spiritual enlightenment begins to happen. And everybody makes decisions on the basis of what they hear from other people. Well, God, you know, he understands. God's loving. I went to a wedding the other day and the word God was never even mentioned. There was not one scripture read. I don't even remember if there was any prayer over the family. They were married in the eyes of law, but I don't think they were married. <laughs> I mean, there was sure no marriage in the eyes of God other than the law itself. And I was sitting there thinking, oh God, help us, help us God. The woke mentality is destroying us. It's infiltrated in the church. We're really gonna hammer it next week. Lord willing, I always say Lord willing because God can change me. But this woke mentality of running everything through the natural mind, the natural mind cannot even comprehend the things of God because the things of God are foolish unto him. Neither can he discern them because they're spiritually discerned. A spiritual man is hated by this generation. A spiritual man is despised, talked about, laughed at, He's a radical. He's crazy. I know what they say about me on the internet because people tell me I don't go looking for it. I really don't care. I know one thing. My goal is to see everybody in the palace of praise. When the rapture morning takes place, we're going to go up hand and say, Woo, hallelujah, we'll see you there in a minute. And the moment in the twinkling of an eye. I want us to take deep rooted, and I'm not talking about, you know, every time we get on this kick, everybody wants to say, well, I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't go out on my husband, I don't go out on my wife. I ain't talking about those things. I'm talking about the works of the flesh, envy, strife, jealousy, uh, 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 all kinds of lasciviousness, idolatry. It goes on and on and on. Unforgiveness, bitterness, and all that kind of stuff. There's things in our lives that we gotta get under the umbrella of God's grace and say, God, search me. I want to be repentant. I want to be holy. I want to be acceptable. I want to be able to come into your presence. And I want the Shekinah glory to fall on the palace of praise. We'll not have the Shekinah glory that we desire or revival or an awakening until this place becomes holy. Without holiness, no man's going to see God, not now or in the life to come. Blessed are the pure in heart. They're the ones that's going to see God. It's those of us that's are pure those of us that's holy, 
Those of us being brought under the submission of the Lordship of Jesus. And he's not just Savior, but he's Lord. And we're walking out our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. I'd like for us all to come around the altar where no one feels uncomfortable. Let's have a moment of reflection with the Lord just for a moment. Can we not do that? Can we not just give him three or four or five minutes here? And I want you to reflect on the Lord. And I want you to say to the Lord whatever you want to say to the Lord. I just want you to examine your heart. I've examined mine. This word's kicked me right between the teeth as well. I don't want any bitterness. I don't want any unforgiveness. I don't want any grudge. I don't want any kind of jealousy. I don't want any kind of hatred. I don't want any kind of uh, weight or sin to beset me at all. I want, I want to be cleansed of all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I want to abstain from the very appearance of evil. Even if I don't know if it's right or wrong, if it has an appearance to it, I don't want anything to do with it because it could rob me of the presence of God. Amen? I don't want anything that's going to stand in my way to where when the Lord looks at me, he won't say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I want to make you ruler over many. Enter into the joys of the Lord today. Oh, my. God wants us to be cleansed. Just start asking for personal cleansing, whether you feel it, you need it or not. Plead the blood over your life. Ask God for a new start, a new slate, a new beginning. Ask God, God, let me get serious about you. Let you be the sinner. Let my house be focused upon the tabernacle. Let me be faithful to the house of the Lord. Let me be faithful to the presence of God. Let me pursue you with everything and let me have my children understand the value of who you are. And, the, and God, let us not take your presence for granted and your salvation for granted. That which you've given to me, I want to give all and more back to you. I want to give my life to you. My full life to you, Lord. That's what I want to give to you here this morning. Would you concentrate yourself? Repent of anything where you're wrong. God's here to give it to you today or you wouldn't be here. He's offered you repentance or you wouldn't be in the house of the Lord to hear this message. Just say, God, I've battled this for 50 years and I've always just uh, made excuses for it. I've tucked it under the rug. I've ignored it. Oh, but I don't want to be found wanting. Oh, I don't want the handwriting ordinances to be against me. Oh, Lord, help me. Forgive me. And let me be free in Jesus' name. Father, right now, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, I pray, God, this, this sobering moment at this altar, that everybody under the sound of my voice would, God, just come before your presence and say, God, here I am. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Make me a new creature in Christ Jesus. And all the things where I've failed, all the things where I've been slack, all the places where I've been, God, wanting, where I've not been living up to the expectation of your spirit. Forgive me. And help me to live, God, according to your plan and purpose, fulfilling destiny. I come by the way of the altar today, God, knowing that the first step in the presence of God is me having a turnaround in my life. And I want that turnaround right now. I want to turn around, God. I want to walk away from my old life, and I want to give you my heart. Even though, God, I've been a Christian, I've, I just need a renewal. I need a refreshing. God, I need a transformation. I need a, I need a regeneration. I need a renewing all over again. Wash me. Make me whiter than snow. Let me be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and let me be honorable in your sight. 
and let us be a holy inhabitation of the Lord. Let this stone cry out. Let this stone be one that the builder won't reject. Let this stone be, God, one that's laid on the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ and the apostles. God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, and I give you the glory, and I give you the honor, and I give you the praise. If you've repented and you really believe it and you're confident in your work, God's forgiven you. Now enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Enter in his courts with praising for it. Come on, somebody praise the Lord for you. What's happening here? We're headed for a holy kiss. We're headed for God to put a step of approval upon the church. I don't know it. He's just getting us ready. We're gonna to have to hear some tough word for a little bit, but when we, when we surrender and we become the church that Jesus wants us to, watch out. God's fixing to give us the signs, the wonders, and the miracles that we all been praying for and believing for. And again, you're saying, why are you doing this? Because we got to honor him. Now give him praise for that word and accept it as truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to do one more favor and we'll dismiss. Turn to somebody, put your hand on them and say, be blessed in Jesus' name and God bless you. Yeah.